please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to talk about one verse this morning, this afternoon. What time is it? This afternoon. I'll talk just through one verse. It's the Apostle Paul writing to a church. And do you know how Paul's letters go? The first half of his letters talk about what's true of us because of what God has done for us in Christ. And then somewhere he has a therefore... Then he says, this is all the stuff that you ought to be doing based upon what I've already told you that Christ has done for you. And in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we're going to look at the last verse, verse 32. He's talking about how Christians should live out their lives. And it's a verse that I thought about for many years, but never really went very deep. And then one day it kind of dawned on me. He says in verse 32, be kind to one another. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Tender-hearted not hard-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I'm going to be preaching this afternoon on the phrase, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This message is entitled, God's Healing of Life's Biggest Hurts. What do you do with the terrible things that happen to human beings in the course of their lives. It can be a very helpful thing when someone gets to be 16, 17, 18, and they start looking beyond the end of their nose. When you're in high school, in the first couple of grades, you're just thinking about yourself, and the world ends with the end of your nose. But when you get to be a little older, you notice the world out there, and you begin to notice that this world isn't Disney World. It can be a very hard place to live. It can be a very unforgiving place. And we receive something of what the Bible talks about as sin and its impact on the world. Now, most parents, not all, but most parents try to protect their children from stuff coming into their lives. They try to protect their children from really bad things happening to them. Like I said, some parents don't work at it very hard. Others' parents work at it very hard. But one way or another, you're going to hear about, you're going to experience pain in your life and suffering because of sin in the world. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now as a Christian, you know that. If you've attended this church very long, you know that. All have sinned, not just some people, not just really bad people, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In fact, if you want to keep track of things, life on this fallen planet is a record of our sinning and being sinned against. Ourselves sinning and being sinned against. If you want to talk to people who know too much about life, talk to a policeman or talk to a pastor because they both have to deal with sin. Pastors don't put people in jail, but they do have the solution to their problems, whereas policemen have the power to arrest you and put you in jail. Policemen and pastors know too much about how painful this life can be. You can read about it in the papers, if anybody still reads papers. You can read it on your computer. You can watch the news tonight, but stuff happens, and it's not always easy to deal with. Now, I have a list here of a whole bunch of different kinds of sins, and we know that the Apostle Paul talks about fiery darts that come, come into your life, and the need to have the ability to put out those fiery darts, but sometimes they're not fiery darts. Sometimes someone does the equivalent of sticking a harpoon in your chest, and it's devastating. Things were done to you. Things were done toward you 
that you wouldn't have chosen in a million years. But sadly, it happened. As a pastor for 31 years, and then working with students for 10 years before that, I saw all kinds of horrific things that can happen to people. And being a Christian and living in this planet, I've had things done to me of different levels of of badness or misery. Some sins done against you are actually horrific. They're filled with horror. Others are life-altering sins. You were going a certain way in life and this happened and then you went a different way in life because that happened. I'm not going to go through my list here because I decided if I left out your sin, you might not think about it. The sin that was committed by you, against you, excuse me. I'm not talking to the today so much about your sins committed against other people. I hope none of you have committed horrific sins toward other people. But probably there's several, if not most of us in this room, have had horrific sins committed against us. It can be done by your parents when you're growing up. One of them can leave. One of them can be unfaithful. It can be done by strangers. It can be done by relatives. It can be done by co-workers. It can be done by neighbors. There's all kinds of sins, and I'm not going to get into the kinds of sins they might be. It's estimated that 40% of the women in Christian churches in America were victimized at some point growing up. And so I look at you ladies, and I hope that wasn't true of any of you, but I suspect it was true of some of you. What are we to do with these awful sins? What are we to do with these awful things that have happened to us? Well, as a pastor, I can tell you from talking to people that there's a whole lot of wrong ways to deal with these great hurts. Today, I want to deal with the biblical way of dealing with these greatest of hurts, but I want to first kind of knock down some of the ways that we think that we're dealing with things. First of all, one of the very tried and true ways, I'm just going to pretend this didn't happen. I'm just not going to think about this. I'm going to stuff it way, way, way down, and I'm never going to think about it. I'm not going to talk to anybody about it. I'm just going to pretend it never happened. That's not a good way of dealing with these things. It doesn't actually deal with it at all. It just makes you kind of sort of think you're not talking about it. But things have a way of coming out in other areas of our life that we don't always realize they're related to something we might be stuffing down. Another way that's wrong to deal with it is I will forever hate that person and judge them in my heart and condemn them. Okay, that's one possible way. Or another way is you can just keep rehearsing the sin and what they did to you. And I remember what this person did, and I remember what this person did, and I remember what this person did, and I begin to become a bitter. The only thing that's sadder almost than what the sin they did to you was how the sin has turned you into a bitter person. Bitterness is not pretty. A fourth wrong way of dealing with our sin is to become a perpetual victim. And think of yourself as a perpetual victim. This sin becomes, for many people, a life-defining thing. Well, my life was like this, and then this happened, and that's who I am now. And that's not the way that God would have you deal with your sin. No sin should define you. It shouldn't be the defining characteristic of your life. A sixth way is, I don't put sins away, I get even. Vengeance is mine, saith put your name in there. And so you look for ways to get back at that person, to hurt them back. God says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, 
Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You do have a father who looks, up, looks out for you, and if someone hurts you, your heavenly father will deal with them. But that's not my main point I'm going to go to right now. But, but he does say, vengeance is mine, you're not to avenge yourself. But many people, they want revenge. Why is it that, um, call them revenge movies, or uh, kind of movies where, you know, Charles Bronson started several of them in the 70s, and Liam Neeson has made a career toward the end of his life in the last 10 years of doing revenge movies like Taken, Taken 2, Taken 3, and all these different movies about, you did this and I nuked your whole block. And why do people like to go to these movies? Because revenge feels good. It feels good to get payback. Only trouble is it doesn't really deal with the original problem. Strategies for being sinned against that I've just mentioned don't work. The only thing that works is what we're going to see today in the Bible. What God's word commands us to do. What did he say in our text? Forgiving one another just as God in Christ forgave you. And already you're thinking, well, that's not even possible. I mean, God is just asking too much. He doesn't know what I went through. He doesn't know what this cost me. He doesn't know bad, how bad it hurt, and it still hurts. Our text tells us, just as God in Christ forgave you. So we need to review today. How did God in Christ forgive you? Did he just, I'm just not going to think about their sin. I'm going to stuff it really, really far down. I'm never, not going to think about their sins. Is that what the scripture says? Well, no. Did God um, decide to exact vengeance? I will nuke all these kids. I will nuke all these suckers, and I'm going to kill them. No. Um, and all the things I listed, those are none of the things that God did. He did forgive us, but how did God forgive us? That's what we're going to look at. God's forgiveness of guilty sinners is based solely, only, exclusively on the finished work of Christ, plus nothing. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed God and fulfilled the requirements of the law. The soul that sins shall die. The punishment for sin is death. We saw in a Sunday school lesson that your sin is against an infinitely perfect God and that your sin is cosmic treason. He made you, he designed you to live in his presence and to enjoy him forever. And we rebelled against him and the penalty of sin is death. What is going to deal with our penalty of death? Well, God the Son becomes a man. I was just hearing somebody today saying that the greatest miracle of all in the New Testament is the fact that in the eternal trinity, God chose to become a man. The incarnation is the greatest miracle in the Bible, and all the other miracles, in a sense, flow out of that. In Romans 1, Paul says, the resurrection proved not only that Jesus' claims as God were true, but the resurrection proves that Jesus Christ got what he paid for. The Father accepted his death on behalf of all the people he came to save. If Christ said, I'm God, and I'm going to forgive your sins, and I'm going to die and be raised from the dead, and that doesn't happen, then you're entitled to think, well, his claims were bogus. It didn't work. I mean, I like the guy. He seems like a nice guy. But the claims he made didn't come true. But God raised him from the dead, and so it both proved his claims to be God, but it also proves that his claims to have fulfilled all righteousness I have atoned for every one of the sins of every one of my people. 
Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, at the very first sin, we see that God has a sacrifice for sins. Adam and Eve knew they were naked. They, were, they no longer felt free in their nakedness. They felt guilty in their shame. And so what does God do? He clothes them with animal skins. And where do the animal skins come from? Uh, dead animals. God had, to, God had to sacrifice animals and take their skins and cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Every sin since then has been covered by the blood of a sacrifice, leading finally to the sacrifice of Christ. We had a reading today from Leviticus, and for most Christians, Leviticus is a very boring book full of arcane and odd and weird details. But if you go back and read it slowly and get a little help, it's a book about sacrifices. And six sacrifices for all the different kinds of sins that human beings commit. God says, I want to have a relationship with you. And I created you to have a relationship with me, but I can't do that based upon your current standing before me. You need something to cover your sins, and I will provide sacrifices for you. Every sin requires the death. An animal's death will have to be made as a substitute for your death. You can die for your own sins if you want to, or you can allow the substitute to take your place. And then the sacrificial system says, well, if you're poor, just bring a turtle dove, something easy. If you're middle class, bring a lamb. If you're rich, bring a bull calf, the future of a herd. And it'll cost you something, the death of the innocent substitute. But sin cannot be cleansed without the blood of a sacrifice. In fact, it says in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The whole book of Leviticus is just a book on how to have your sins dealt with. And in fact, you don't really get what Christ did on the cross if you've never really worked through, to some degree, the book of Leviticus, because the book of Leviticus says these are all the things that has to be done to placate a holy God for sin, and Christ fulfilled all those things. So Leviticus is really making us beeline to the cross and saying, this is all that Christ did on the cross. This is what he became. Leviticus 17.11 sums it up like this. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is blood that makes atonement for the life. Life for life. There's no shedding, excuse me, there's no forgiveness of sins. There's no atoning for sin without the taking of a life. And so if you were an Israelite and you committed a sin, you would take this animal to the priest and you would confess your sins and explain to the priest what you did and he would have you then place your hands on the head of the animal and confess your sin and then the animal's throat would be cut, it would be killed, its blood poured out on the mercy seat, so to speak, the top of the, the golden cover of the Ark of the Covenant and splashed on the sides of the altar and this blood was substitutionary for your blood. Somebody had to die. Some payment had to be made. It wasn't cheap grace. God wasn't saying, well, I'm having a good day. Y'all, come on in. Or I just wink at sin. It's not really that big a deal. The Bible exaggerates how big a deal sin is. God doesn't wink at sin. The penalty has to be paid. The Israelites would bring their sacrifices and they were reminded over and over and over again you know, non-Christians who hate Christianity say, 
This is a slaughterhouse religion. I mean, it's full of blood and gore. And can you imagine how the temple area would stink when you've had hundreds of sacrifices? And all the blood's poured out and the animal parts are cut up and distributed. And it's just a gory place. Uh, my father worked for a meat packing company and I've been inside slaughterhouses. They're not places you want to go for fun. It's not, hey, come on, let's take the family and go to the slaughterhouse and see what's going on. They're gory places. Gory places. And people have said, well, Christianity is a slaughterhouse religion. It's not. But it is a religion that takes sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. And God doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't get over sin. God deals with sin. In fact, once a year, it was called the Day of Atonement, or the Jews today call it Yom Kippur, when the high priest makes once, one sacrifice for all the sins of the nation for that year. Well, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus as an adult? He was talking to his disciples. Jesus comes walking up, and John the Baptist goes, Behold, and you know how it goes, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of not a family, not an individual, not a nation, takes away the sins of the world. People from every tribe and tongue and people group on the face of the planet have an atoning sacrifice. When Jesus was facing the Last Supper, when he's facing his own death and what he told his disciples, he says in Matthew 26 that his blood was to be shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why am I dying? And why did Jesus' blood have to be poured out? Because he was the substitute. He was the sacrifice. I tried to teach you, and I tried to harp on this the times I visited, 2 Corinthians 5.21, the gospel in one verse. For God made him who knew no sin to become sin. When does this happen? On the cross. So that, purpose clause, we... Me, Paul, you Corinthians, us believing sinners might become the righteousness of God in him. This great substitution happens, this great exchange. My sins are counted on Christ. He becomes sin incarnate, if you, if you will. And I have the righteousness of Christ. Paul told the Colossians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, our breaking the law, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. The law demands that it be punished. Every sin ever committed in the history of the world, let me repeat that, every sin ever committed in the history of the world will be punished. It will either be punished on the unbelieving sinner in hell for eternity, or it will be punished on Christ for the believing sinner who took Christ as their substitute. But every sin will be punished no sin will ever get off scot-free. The author of Hebrews said, Christ has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's why he came. He didn't come primarily to be a great example. He didn't come primarily to be a great teacher, though he was both those things. But his first job to reestablish fellowship and intimacy between God and man was he had to atone for sin. I like the, what Hebrews 10 says, and as a sinner, I return to this passage over and over again because I'm a sinner. In Hebrews 10, the author says, Every priest stands daily in the temple at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And that's true. The Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't taking away sins. It was merely covering them because it was pointing forward to a time 
when God himself would provide the lamb. God himself would provide the ultimate taker away of sin, which these temporary things only pointed to. They weren't atoning for sin as he would. They were covering sin. But when Christ had offered for all time, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why why do you sit down? Because your work is completed. Waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And this great repeating verse. For by a single offering he has made perfect for all time those who are being made holy. If you're a believer, that's your testimony. That's mine. My sins were dealt with once and for all by Christ. I've been made perfect in his righteousness for all time. And God's working to make me holy, to make my experience catch up with my position. Christ had, Christians had their sins placed on Christ on the cross and now bear his perfect record. God looks upon each believer as if they have, as if they're Christ. They have Christ's righteousness. There are no sins that they've committed which are clamoring for their condemnation because Christ has atoned for them all. The law has been satisfied. God's not unjust to pardon us because the demands of the law have been met. Now I'm rehearsing all this and now we're going to apply it to the question of right and that's who I am as a Christian. What in the world does that have to do with being horribly sinned against? Well, you know, one of the things that God shows that he respects you is he appeals to your mind. Christianity is not primarily a religion of emotions, but I have emotions based upon truth. It's not primarily a religion of the will. I'm not appealing to your will today. Do this, charge ahead, come forward, jump back, hop around the room, do something. I'm not appealing to your will. The Bible is the greatest apologetic for God wants you to use your mind. He didn't give you a tract. He gave you a big book full of his plans for time and eternity. Well, what does this big book say? It says, I want you to think about taking the work of Christ, the gospel, if you will, and applying it to these horrific things that have been done to you. And again, as a pastor, I knew, as I looked at my congregation, if I sat there and thought about each one, I could just sit up front and cry because there's so many bad things done to people who I had responsibility for, sheep of my flock. But it wouldn't do any good to sit up there and cry. I mean, you know, we once had a president said, I feel your pain. That sounds nice other than the fact that you can't do anything about my pain, but the fact you feel my pain, I suppose I should reelect you. Anyway, so how do we apply what we've talked about to being horribly sinned against. Well, first of all, let's think about the difference between justice and vengeance. What is justice? The appropriate recompense being given for the crime. You know, in the Old Testament, for example, the phrase an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and some non-Christians want to make this into a bad deal. What that is, it's a limit on justice. If you're hurt in a fight and someone gouges out one of your eyes, you can't go and kill him because... It wasn't, appropriate to the, it wasn't appropriate response to the crime that was committed against you. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Somebody punches me in the mouth, I spit out a tooth, I can't go take a sword and cut his head off. That's not appropriate justice. Justice is God's holy laws applied to the situation at hand. Vengeance means I can exact my punishment and whatever hurt I feel upon this other person. Like I said, that's why revenge and payback movies are so popular. But we must view God's holy justice rightly if we're to see how this applies to our situation. 
think, get your brain engaged. If the person who sinned against you and hurt you so terribly never repents, they never come to Christ for salvation, they will bear that sin they committed against you along with all their other sins in hell for eternity. They will be punished for that sin. That sin is not going to get off scot-free. That will go on forever. C.S. Lewis said, if you could see a person a little short time after they've been in hell, you'd run away from them as you want to run away from things in your nightmares at night. Or if you could see a person a few seconds after they've been in heaven, you'd think that you were in the presence of Christ because they would look so angelic. Hell is a terrible place, and being punished forever for our sins is a terrible place to be. Every sin ever committed will be punished. For your children who are sitting here and all looking sweet and nice and, hey, we're not causing any trouble, we're just kids. Well, you will have to deal with your sins as you grow up. God doesn't grade on the curve. We must have a Savior from our sins. That's why boys and girls need a Savior, not just moms and dads, not just old people, not just criminals and bad guys, but boys and girls are sinners and they need a Savior too. The sins that men never saw that were committed against you, the sins that the authorities never punished against you, God saw. And God is horribly offended by this sin. You're thinking now, remember you've got your thinking cap on, you're not just emoting, I'm not just asking you to feel, I'm asking you to think. It's the sin that was committed against you that you want punished. Whatever this thing was, part of your soul cries out, that wasn't right, that wasn't just, that wasn't good, that was terrible, I didn't deserve that. It's the sin that's defiled you, stained you, polluted you, ravished your heart, and made you miserable. God is going to punish every sin. This awful sin will not go unpunished, it won't. Can you believe that God in his own way will not let the guilty go free? Do you believe what the scripture says? Do you believe that he is the just judge? The Old Testament says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? If God himself hates an unjust judge, God would have to hate himself if he was an unjust judge. He sees everything that's done and he will deal with it. Now, in our text, that little phrase from Ephesians 4.32 It says, forgiving one another, other people, just as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? Think about what I've just covered. How did you experience forgiveness? Did you have a vision from heaven and God said, I'm having a good day, come on in. Let the record show that nobody raised their hand for that one. Or, um, let's see, what other ways might you think you were saved? Well, of course, you know, there's no other way of being saved except God himself provides the legal punishment for sins upon his son, upon the innocent substitute, and you go free. Christ is condemned, and you go free. By forgiving the other person, regardless of whether or not they repent, and I realize you can listen to different voices out there saying, don't forgive a person unless they repent. I go, why, why do you want to hold on to that sin? I'm not saying they're not going to be judged for their sin. God's still going to be dealing with them. But do you want to carry around their sin the rest of your life? 
Do you want to be a perpetual victim? Is that something you enjoy? Do you want to keep rehearsing what they've done to you the rest of your life? Regardless of whether or not they repent, if I forgive them, I'm releasing them from their accountability to me, though they still have an accountability to God. But in sinning against me, they were sinning against the God who made me. To murder a human being is an affront to God. To sin against a human being by doing any one of a thousand things is an affront to God. By forgiving the other person, you're telling God that you believe him. You tell him that you're, I believe what you say, that vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I will punish every sin. But I think what's really important is sin no longer has the ability to define you, to control you, to victimize you. You can watch in holy justice as God punishes the sin, and the the sin gets what it deserves. Now the question is, can you forgive this person who committed this sin, and this sin's clamoring for justice, and I want to show you from the next passage of Scripture that justice is something that victims are entitled to. Justice is something that God is for. Please turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation 6 is, we didn't read that passage. Which, which passage did we read from Revelation? 7. I almost made it. Okay. Chapter 6, verse 9. Listen to what, what it says here. When he opened the fifth seal, when the angel opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Christians had been killed. They had been martyred. Did you know the word for martyr is the same word for witness? It depends the context. If you're witnessing to a guy, it's the word martyreo. If the guy kills you for witnessing to him, it's still martyreo. You became a martyr for witnessing to him. But by the end of the New Testament, the word witness meant to become a martyr. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Well, time out. Where are these people again? Are they in Philadelphia? No. Are they in Hoboken, New Jersey? No. Are they in South Fort Worth? No. Where are they? They're in heaven. By definition, people who go to heaven, their sins are gone. These are, they don't, haven't received their glorified bodies, but they're not sinners anymore. People in heaven are clamoring for God's justice. They're telling the Lord, they're reminding him, God, you're sovereign and you're true. You don't wink at things. Your, your word is true. It's not just a fairy tale. You're holy and you're true. And when are you going to avenge our blood? It wasn't right that we got killed for witnessing. Then they were each given a white robe, the righteousness of Christ, and told to rest a little longer, relax, rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. If you read the New Testament, there's a subtext that a lot of times we miss that says that there's a certain number of people that are going to suffer a certain amount of pain until Christ comes back. And until that amount is filled up, God's still pursuing his purposes. There's more people who have to die for, as witnesses for Christ, as martyrs, and that number has not been reached yet. So these people are crying out to God for vengeance. And he said, hold your, hold your point just a minute. They're perfected people. They are not in sin. They're calling for justice. You're, the hurt that was done to you that was so horrific 
is clamoring for justice. This wasn't right. I'm a sinner, but I didn't deserve that. It's a righteous thing to want God's justice, and these martyrs are clearly shouting and crying out for it. Now, let's keep reading. How does God deal with the situation? Verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, you know, the people you see on television, and the generals and the rich and the powerful, okay, and everyone, slaves and free, all the rest of the great unwashed multitude. There's the movers and shakers, and then there's the rest of us who live in society. And God says, I see all of their sins. They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks. Why are they hiding themselves? What are they yelling? Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? People are petrified. Better than a mountain fall on my head and smoosh me down into the middle of the planet than have to stand before the holy gaze of the Father and the Son. Justice is coming. And these people said, better to die in being squashed by a mountain than have to stand the gaze of God. Now, God is going to pay back for all the sins that have ever been committed. I want to explain to you why it's so important that you forgive the people who sinned against you. I can forgive someone who doesn't repent. I, as a Christian, I'm told to forgive one another as just as God forgave me. But the other person may never repent and we have no reconciliation. Or sadly, sometimes is the case is sometimes people do repent and the person they sinned against won't forgive them. Remember in the Corinthian church, Paul had to unilaterally, as a, as using his apostolic authority, excommunicate a guy for gross sin and rebuking the church for not dealing with him. And then the second letter says, and this guy really repented and this guy was really broken and you all were too hard-hearted and didn't take him back. So it's a possibility that sometimes people who do gross things, wicked things, are given the grace of repentance, but then the people they sinned against don't forgive them. In that case, too, you don't have reconciliation. In the first case, I was righteous and did the right thing and forgave this person, releasing them from their guilt to me. They're still accountable to God. They're still going to have to have this dealt with. But I'm not going to carry it around as my badge in perpetuity. I'm not going to be a perpetual victim. This is not going to be the defining thing of my life. Or, sad, if I choose not to forgive them and stay bitter or become worse, and they do repent, well, we're not going to be reconciled that way either. Repentance without forgiveness means no reconciliation. Forgiveness without repentance needs, means no reconciliation. But what if I choose to, re- to forgive them? And what if they choose to repent? Well, there's no longer the enmity between us. We can have reconciliation, but that doesn't mean we're going to become best friends right away. It doesn't be, you know, because trust is something that's earned over time. I had relatives who had a babysitter, and the babysitter had her boyfriend come over, and the babysitter and the boyfriends defiled their children. Parents' worst nightmare. You forgive these people. I don't know if they ever repented or not, but if they repented, were you going to hire them right back as a babysitter? You'd be a fool too. The Bible doesn't say become a fool. 
It doesn't say put your brain on the shelf. Greatest example is Joseph in the Old Testament. He's 14 years old. His brothers wanted to kill him. They go, no, we can make money off him. We'll sell him to these Amalekite slave traders. They'll take him off to another, he'll take him off to another country. We'll never see him again. 17 years later. That's more than he'd been alive up to that time. The story of the saga starts when he's 14. He's 31. He's number two in the government of Egypt. He's the prime minister. And his brothers come by, not recognizing him. He's wearing Egyptian costume, Egyptian probably makeup, headdress, all this stuff. They don't recognize him. And he doesn't reveal himself. He doesn't say, hey guys, guess who? It's me, long time no see. What have you been up to? He's not naive because how does he know their attitudes changed? How does he know they've ever repented of what they've done to him? They could kill him again in secret if they were all alone with him. He doesn't do that. He tests his brothers to see where their hearts are before he re-entrusts himself to them. And the point of this is simply to say that you and I need to be careful that we don't become naive. I've known cases of people who've committed horrible sins against other people and the person who committed the horrible sin later repented, and the Christian who was sinned against forgave them, again, that doesn't mean you have to become best friends. You don't have to entrust yourself. But you don't carry around this sin anymore as this huge thing, this hole in your chest, this life-defining thing. You're not a perpetual victim. And I know people who've had sins on them for 20, 30, 40 years, and it weighs them down, and they never deal with it. They don't deal with it. And I don't want that for any of you. This is a fallen planet. Every person you've ever met is a sinner. Things happen. The question is, what will I do with that thing, this huge thing? It wasn't a fiery dart. It wasn't a snide remark. It was a harpoon stuck in my chest. How am I going to deal with this? By forgiving this other person, you're not releasing them from their guilt, ultimately, but you're releasing them from accountability to you You've still got to deal with Almighty God. I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to let your sin weigh me down anymore. Because then they, they get to keep on victimizing you. I don't want that for you. God, does, the Father, more importantly, does not want that for you. That's what Scripture teaches about forgiveness. You don't have to, they don't have to repent for you to forgive them. Because if that's the case, then you can just keep carrying your sins around until maybe always, because they never repent. That's not God's way. They're still accountable for their sins, Their sins must still be dealt with, but it's not on you anymore. It's not your burden to carry. It's not your pain to bear. Now, if you know anything about sin, and you've hopefully been churched enough, you have some growing idea of what sin means, forgiveness must be rehearsed over and over again until it's firm in your mind, because like any sin, you know, if if a guy says, yeah, I used to have a problem with lust, but I prayed about it and it went away. People go, what, did you have an operation, or what, what happened? Or It used to be a real worrier, but I prayed about it once and it went away. Really? You never worried again? Some sins of the mind have to be dealt with in the mind, and you have to learn to put them to death. Think of the Lord's Prayer. That's what I've memorized as a child. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day. Or give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead, me not, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
What's the job of the evil one? Well, he's called the accuser of the brethren. He's always throwing stuff in our faces. Hey, remember when you were 15 and you did this? And you had tried to forget what you did when you were 15. But the devil came, brings it back. And by the way, as you are on your deathbed, don't be surprised that the devil trots out all of your sins and says, why do you even think you're a Christian? Look at what you've done. Look at what you've done. Can God possibly forgive a vile person like you? And if you don't know the gospel real clear, real straight, real firm, then you're going to uh, 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 and start stuttering and you're going to lose your assurance. You know, Martin Luther said, everything you've said, devil, is true. And there's a lot more that's true about me. But I have Christ, and then he launches into all that Christ has done for him, and the devil doesn't have a foothold to accuse him anymore. And 2011, 12, and 13 was maybe the hardest time of my life. And things happened to me that I never expected in a million years to happen to me. And every day was a trial. And I'm not anybody special. You have your pains, I have mine. But when you go through this horrific time, every day is just a real pain. And every day is a real struggle. And every day you're tempted to rehash this sin, rehash what's been done to you, rehash how you've been hurt, rehash how they're wrong and you're right. And you can go through that. And does that ever help? I mean, you can go through it a thousand times. The thousandth and first time I remembered something and it was all fixed. No, that's not how the way it works. You just keep, you know, it's a perpetual loop. So my wife and I decided that if we were going to be deal with this and not be perpetual victims, we had to face it biblically. So what does the Bible say? Well, of course, we're to forgive these people, what they've done. But then how do you keep your head straight? Because this record's playing all the time. And you see somebody at the grocery store, you see that person who did it to you somewhere, boom, it all comes back. Well, you have to go back and rehearse in your mind, forgive, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us, and lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one, because the evil one is the accuser. And I, I can remember I was walking around Lake Peachtree, and I was at a certain place, and I was doing well that day, and I was coming up to a big oak tree, and out from behind the oak tree, the whole thing jumped and just, it was in my face again. I go, I can't even go for a walk, and it's in my face. It's right there. But I had to bring everything right back. Okay, what do I know to be true? What do I know to be true? What do you say in your word? It's true. I'm not going to rehearse this whole thing again, and I had to deal with it for the next 50 feet until I could walk onto my walk and keep going without this right there. I don't want any of you to be perpetual victims. I can only imagine the hurts that have been perpetrated upon you by different people in different ways. But the Lord says the gospel is the answer for everything. Christ said it is finished, and I want this huge sins in your life, a sin sin against you, to be finished. I want them to be over with so that you can get on with your life and be a testimony that I'm a sinner on a fallen planet, And I've sinned against others, and others have sinned against me. But these are not the defining things of my life. Jesus Christ and his great work and his great forgiveness, they are the defining things of my life. Let's pray.